As was mentioned earlier by Brother Gary, as the announcements took place, we were certainly delighted that God has blessed each of us with the privilege this morning, this first day of the week, to assemble and together in His name for the purpose of offering worship and homage and glory to His name. As I stand before you this morning, again, we're blessed with visitors, and not only you, but our membership alike. We're happy we've each been able to come, and we trust that our worship will be uplifting to ourselves, but more importantly, that it shall glorify the great name of our, of our Heavenly Father. As you know, we have been reading through the Bible this year, and we've now brought ourselves to the location that you can see on the slide before you. 161 chapters as of the end of the day yesterday we have read together. That is almost 13.5% of the Word of God. And as we continue our journey reading that, you notice that most recently we have concluded the book of Exodus, now in Leviticus, and in the New Testament our journey through Mark is now well underway. These stories, these records, these inspired considerations continue to be so very encouraging and so very challenging in so many ways. As you think about the books mentioned in the Bible, you and I know that the greatest book of all is that particular text that you're holding in your lap, perhaps. The Bible makes mention of several books. I've had to ask you to think about some of them. In the Kings and Chronicles, it makes reference to the book of the Kings, and it makes reference to the book of the Chronicles. But yet, as you and I think about the books that are mentioned in the sacred text, perhaps none other holds the attention of your thought and mind more greatly than the book of life. I would invite you to think with me about that as we come to its first mention in all the Bible. Isn't it interesting that we often reflect upon its reference in Revelation, maybe even the reference in Philippians, but the book of Exodus holds for you and me the very first mention of the sweetness and greatness of that so-called book of life. We'll discuss that at the proper time a bit later in the lesson this morning, but to build to that location so many lessons you and I can actually discuss to reach that point. You remember the scene, as you may have seen in the title, The Golden Calf, and as you reflect upon the occurrences as it related to it. Let's revisit some of them, what stirring scenes they were. The children of Israel had left the bondage of Egypt, and the God of heaven had led them in such a majestic way, bringing them to Mount Sinai. We remember that God beckoned Moses up on the mountain, and there he went. But he was gone for a rather lengthy period of time. In fact, 40 days, the text tells us, Exodus 24, 18. With Moses being gone so long, this gentleman that was their leader, the one who in fact had led them through the trials and difficulties of even the Red Sea, the people became uneasy. They became unsettled. And with Moses being gone, Exodus 32.1 opens with them making a comment to Aaron. We don't know about this Moses. Up, make us gods, they ordered. And immediately in the texts and in the verses that follow, we find some things like this. Aaron succumbed to the pressures of the moment. He, in fact, followed the bidding that they presented. He, in fact, gave them orders. You bring the earrings of your wives, your daughters, and your sons. Aaron took that gold and melted it and fashioned it into a calf. In fact, the text reminds us in the opening seven verses of that chapter that as he fashioned it with some degree of care... He went on to say, after completing it, then he constructed an altar before it. 
not only the calf, but now a perfect opportunity to engage in a rather sacrificial feast and worship at that altar. You'll notice then as the verses proceeded, we learn that Moses was on the mountain, of course, at this time. And the God of heaven in His omnipresent and omniscient character was well aware of what they were doing. And He, in fact, was the first to inform Moses of what was happening. Moses, get down. This people have corrupted themselves. They have worshipped a molten God. Isn't it interesting that we find in verses 7 and following that Moses, of course, initially was somewhat resistant. And he besought God to show a degree of patience and long-suffering toward them. As you can see on that slide before you, God Himself admits He was ready to destroy the people then and there. Doesn't that highlight for us something about God's viewpoint towards sinfulness? Though the human family looks upon it so often as trivial, somewhat almost funny, God doesn't consider it a laughing matter. Here was a people who themselves were merely engaged in a worshipful activity to a God, not Him, but a molten God, idolatry. And God was prepared to destroy them, to consume them. You'll notice in the verses that follow, though God did change His mind, in the sense that He appreciated the reason of Moses. As you reach near the bottom of that slide with me, Moses proceeded to leave the place of that mount and go back to the camp just as God had ordered. As Moses came near the camp, he was accompanied by a young man named Joshua. And as they got close, they could hear the sounds of celebration and the sounds of triumph and noise. At first, Joshua was a bit confused. He thought maybe it was a sound of preparation for war. Moses, however, recognized immediately that it was the song attached to the noise that went with celebration as they got closer and closer. We find that Moses, of course, in furious anger, thrust down the tables when he saw when he came to the camp what they were doing. He broke those tables of stone. As he came into the camp and as he continued the descriptions, some of these things are what happened. Without any hesitation, he took that calf they had constructed he burnt it in the fire. Not only that, he pulverized and ground it to powder, sprinkled it upon the water and made them drink it. As you give thought to, again, what happened with respect to that, following that, now he entered into conversation with Aaron about the nature of what brought this about. Finally, you'll notice in the closing comments, the rebuke was stern, the rebuke was swift, we're amazed, I'm sure, at the response of Aaron. Aaron, it seems, he tried to evade the matter, evade the question to cast the responsibility upon someone else. However, we notice in the closing verses to that chapter that finally Moses asked this very challenging, very profound, and very penetrating question. Who is on the Lord's side? That's still as, as faithful a question as one can possibly consider. For there is but one of two answers. Either we are or we are not. There is no middle ground. And there wasn't then either. And so a commissioning was given. The Levites thankfully immediately answered, We are on the Lord's side. And so it was that then we find that swords were taken and 3,000 in Israel were slain that day. 
3,000 lost their lives because they weren't on the Lord's side. And then we come to that mention in the closing verses of that scintillating book of life. Did you notice the reading that Brother Joy read for us a moment ago? That reading that highlighted statements like this. Yet now, verse 32, if thou wilt forgive their sin, this is Moses pleading, begging God to give consideration to this sin the people had committed. If thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. To be blotted out of that book, the book of life. We find here the children of Israel were on a precipice of decision. What would befall them? Would God blot them out of His book? Would they not be allowed to proceed to continue to remain in the friendly confines of God's love and grace? Thankfully, in the chapters that followed, we do remember that God did extend again His mercy to them. But as we think about these matters in the book of life, let us take ourselves and learn some valiant lessons about it. First, a picture. It may well be that golden calf looks something like that. You'll notice how artfully it is prepared, how exquisitely it's presented. If you think about the number of the children of Israel, and if you think about the fact that they borrowed of the Egyptians before they left, they no doubt had much gold in their possession. In fact, the picture at the top left may in fact be just a small version of the calf that they actually constructed. They had enough gold to make a large one if they wanted. At the bottom right, you'll notice another picture, perhaps indicative of the celebration, the joyous time that they had dancing around this golden calf. It may be fair to say that the inspired writer, the ancient man Moses, pointed out to us in this text that it may well be that some of their activities were rather licentious, rather lewd, rather inappropriate in almost every consideration. In fact, a bit later in the chapter, you'll notice that one of the questions that Moses asked Aaron was about how that the people had been let loose. And the implication is maybe they were partially naked as they were celebrating around that golden calf. You and I can well see the people had degenerated very, very far from the intent that God had for them. They were a holy people, or were supposed to have been. They were to appear people who in fact respected the way of God and who in every walk of life understood the obedience that God demanded. And yet, with Moses gone but just a few weeks, they had fallen prey to this. Satan was having a heyday, and the people of Israel were languishing beneath the load of sin. As you and I think about the golden calf, Maybe these lessons are those matters that you and I can consider with respect to it. I would ask that we each, for the next few moments, make some applications of this golden calf scenario to your life and mine. As you and I live so many centuries removed from thee, and it doesn't in any way take from it the, the power and the fact that you and I can fall prey to, in principle, some of the exact same things. First of all, Consider with me the lesson of fleeting faithfulness. The children of Israel, wouldn't we all agree, had been a marvelous witness to so many things. 
they were aware of the promises God had made to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They were keenly aware of the way that God had blessed them favorably by preserving them in the land of Goshen, in the land of Egypt. Furthermore, as the book of Exodus opened, they were certainly well aware of the fact that though they were in oppression and were in bondage, God brought plagues upon the Egyptians. Among those ten plagues, we remember that eight of them, the Israelites never experienced. Think about the darkness. It was fully dark in Egypt, but there was plenty of light in the, in where the Israelites were. Or those locusts that so perturbed and bothered the Egyptians, but they didn't bother the Israelites. Or the plague of the hail didn't fall among where the Israelites were. They had time and again witnessed the fact that God had brought terrible atrocities upon other people but had been so good to them. When they finally left Egypt after the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, we remember they came to the Red Sea and God saw water congealed and walled up on two sides for them. They walked through on dry ground. And yet that same water came together and drowned the Egyptians. They'd seen this you'll notice that He had preserved them. They had a pillar, a cloudy pillar leading them by day, a pillar of fire to lead them by night. Six days a week they had manna on the ground. They just had to pick it up and eat it. The God of heaven was so good to them. Faithfulness abounded in their direction. And yet while Moses was on the mountain, they could do this. They turned their back upon the God of heaven they, in fact, went full astray and broke the very commandments they promised they'd never do. Isn't it fair to say, in light of these things, how fleeting faithfulness can sometimes be? I would invite you to think with me about some of these matters. Their faithfulness had been so short-lived. Back in Exodus 24, verse 8, the people had made a monumental statement after God had delivered the Ten Commandments to them, after God had set forth before them the sundry and various laws that He had, they made this statement, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. They had promised to be absolutely obedient, and yet eight chapters later, what were they doing? Dancing around a golden calf. Worshiping virtually naked apparently. Hard to believe, isn't it? Or is it? For you see, sometimes the very nature of the working of Satan can bring those who once, of course, appreciated faithfulness to begin to make mistakes, to begin to stray, to begin to act in ways that are disgraceful and shameful and absolutely sinful. Look at some other examples like Peter. In the New Testament era, what was it that he affirmed in Luke twenty-two thirty-three? 33? Here the Lord was relatively near the time of His own crucifixion. And that very night, Jesus spoke to Peter very kindly, but also very straightforwardly. Peter, Satan has desired to have thee, that he may sift thee as wheat. Two verses later, Peter said, I will die if it's necessary. He pronounced an incredible attribute of faithfulness. He pronounced that nothing would be able to separate him from the majesty and love of his Lord. Twenty-four verses later, he denied even knowing Jesus. Denied even knowing Him. Twenty-four verses later. Amazing how quickly scenes can change. 
amazing how thoroughly matters can be brought before us. Peter had no idea later that night his Lord would be arrested. He had no idea later that night that he would be called on to give a witness, a fact that he knew Jesus, and yet in the matter of the moment he crumbled. Maybe in this golden calf we too can appreciate the fleeting nature of sometimes faithfulness if we aren't prepared for the onslaught of what Satan shall bring. Maybe another example is that of Simon himself in Acts the 8th chapter. You remember that here was one who had deceived the people of Samaria for a long time. And yet, when he became aware of the gospel, he obeyed and was baptized, Acts 8 verse 12. And then, not many moments later, he tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter confronted him directly and said that you're guilty of sin. It can't be bought with money. Isn't it fair to say that on those two occasions, what was regarded as faithfulness was so fleeting because of the disobedience seen in the lives of those under description? I would point out to us that it's also very interesting that even those who are in prominent positions of leadership must also be very careful. Think about Aaron for a moment. With Moses and Joshua both gone, he was naturally the one to whom they would look for guidance and for leadership, and yet he crumbled beneath the pressure. He was the principal figure in making this golden calf. We need to lift up the hands of our leaders, our elders, and to help them on their way and not make their way harder and not make their sojourn more difficult because they too, you see, have great burdens to bear. Maybe in finality on that slide, we should be so quick to say that Satan loves for faithfulness to be a fleeting thing. He doesn't want your faithfulness in mind. He doesn't want your steadfast loyalty to the Lord. He doesn't want you to be loyally allegiant to that which the Bible proclaims. You know how much he had to be enjoying this golden calf episode. You know how much he had to be appreciating that he had gained the upper hand. And this people who had come out of Egypt and who were supposed to be God's prized possession were engaging in activity worse than any of the Canaanites. How might he be thinking today about those who claim to be his followers? Is Satan enjoying it when the church is having problems? Does he enjoy it when the church is, in fact, sundered with difficulties and its leaders themselves fall prey to dire and grievous sin? You know he enjoys it. Anytime the church can be given a black eye in the light of public opinion, Satan is enjoying every moment of it. The church, you see, was purchased and it was maintained with a degree of blemishless perfection, Ephesians 5.27. Perhaps in light of that, this fleeting faithfulness helps us look at the next lesson. Not only must we be constantly on guard, your life and mine, notice some of the other things this golden calf brings before us. Let's cast the spotlight especially upon Aaron. And look at some of the actions that we find in him. Back in the opening verses of Exodus 32, the text says in verse number 2, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the ear golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. You can imagine the scenario. Here was a people 
They had found themselves beneath the Egyptian overlords for hundreds of years. They had found themselves in dire straits so many times, greatly oppressed. They hadn't known anything about their own leadership. The Egyptians were their leaders. Finally, there arose a man with the absolute appearance of a leader. His name was Moses, and God commissioned him. He came and he gave them instructions. He led them. Now he was gone. All these weeks he'd been gone. They didn't even know whether he was still alive up on that mountain. But yet their faith wavered so, and they approached Aaron, Make us gods. Did you notice? They did not say, Make us a leader. They said, We want some gods. Their mind had filtered back to their time in Egypt. They had witnessed those gods to which the Egyptians had looked. They were aware of the confidence that that gave the Egyptians, and they wanted something similar. Make us gods. This was the very time for Aaron and strength to say, You ought to be ashamed of what you're asking. Repent of this evil. Our God will look after us. And Aaron didn't do it. He played up to what they requested. He asked them to provide gold, and they did it in abundance. And he took that gold, and the language of verse number 4 is very interesting. It says, He received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. You'll notice he fashioned it. He took the care and the time to carefully and artfully make this calf. It is not as he later would say, I cast the gold into the fire and out came this calf. Aaron did say that. As you give thought to the nature of what Aaron here said, it's a shame that this leader allowed this to happen. We are told in Exodus 23, 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Rather than him leading the people, he allowed them to lead him. He allowed them to direct him in the direction and into the pathways of this evil and this sinfulness. And Aaron followed right along. Maybe as we give thought to those attributes and those matters, it is a constant reminder to us about the pressure of the moment. Don't you and I know that the pressure of society can be mounting and it can be extensive? The pressure to engage in activities that are sinful. Those that are around us, they often have little if any appreciation of the Bible, the way of God, the truth of the Christ, the matters of morality and ethics set forth in the, in the Word of God. But isn't it true that those pressures then that they can exert can sometimes be extensive? Almost the point of overwhelming. I would ask you to notice the contrast. Here were two brothers. On the one hand was Aaron, and we have seen his weakness. How did Moses react when he descended the mount? When he first saw the calf and when he first was aware of that which was taking place, he could easily have tried to excuse, It's my brother! Maybe he could have excused it in another, in another set of ways. This was the very people whom God had chosen. Moses didn't try to excuse it at all. In fact, in furious anger, he approached and destroyed that calf. He rebuked his brother. Maybe in light of that, we gain another impression about the character of sin. Sin cannot be couched. It cannot be tolerated. For if so... We see the evil that it brings. 
Moses proceeded at once to destroy the calf. And did you notice he sprinkled that gold on the water and made them drink it? I suspect they didn't soon forget the bitterness of drinking all that metal. Have you ever had a piece of metal in your mouth, a piece of aluminum foil or something? It's a very troubling and distasteful thing. Can you imagine drinking all that gold? I'm sure they did not soon forget the bitter pill that was that gold and the mistake that they had made in it. Perhaps in fairness to that, consider the state in which you and I live today and the kind of society in which so many sinful things are upheld and applauded and they're condoned. Social drinking is rampant. We know it, we see it all around us. And in fact, our state legislature just this very week passed a law that allowed grocery stores to sell wine on Sunday. Soon, if our legislature has its way, you can go buy wine anytime you want it, including Sunday morning. Our society is such that no one seems to think much about it. But God said, this is evil. And it's wrong. Who is on the Lord's side? Are you and I? Will we maintain our fidelity to the statements of Scripture? Because that will send a soul to hell. We read in the New Testament passages like Ephesians 5.18 and 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 6 and following. All of which remind us that we live in a society that though it approves it, we must be strong and firm to appreciate 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Abstain from all appearance of evil. What about gambling? We see Powerball that offers millions and hundreds of millions of dollars and individuals clamor to buy their lottery tickets. But God has said that gambling is wrong. God has said that in that exposition that is not an appropriate matter. Are we on the Lord's side or are we not? We must make our choice and our decision. And you'll notice that that list might be extended considerably. Isn't it interesting? We see individuals with tattoos and markings and various and sundry other circumstances in their bodies. Are we on the Lord's side? Will we ensure that our youngsters appreciate the fervor and nature of God's laws in that way? They will face many, many tremendous pressures. It seems with each generation the matter only worsens. We need to be those assistants to help our youngsters understand that just like it was in the golden calf, they are going to be pressured. May they not succumb like Aaron did. You'll notice that list also extends to the way that we clothe ourselves. How do we dress? Our society, again, seems to know no bounds with respect to scanty clothing. Dress as little as you like. We see it on our newscast, we see it on the magazines, and we appreciate it in common society when we go into the cities. But you and I realize God has made some statements about this. And He does take it seriously, just like He did in the golden calf. God was furiously angry. He was even prepared to destroy them. Will you and I remain faithful? Are we on the Lord's side? You'll notice that in light of these things... This second lesson has been a very touching one in many ways because the principle seems to be an abiding one, doesn't it? But you'll notice that there are more lessons to be gleaned. Let's quickly look at Aaron from another perspective. Not only his weakness there helping us see that we ought not be weak like that, 
What about his actions when Moses returned? I'd like you to read with me as you exactly listen to what Aaron said. After Moses descended the mount and broke the tables of, of stone, when the time came that he addressed Aaron, this is what Moses said, and then this is what Aaron replied. Verse 21, Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we walk not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Aaron said that. Did you notice, though, some of the interior details of what he said first? When Moses first rebuked him, did you notice he said, Let not my Lord's anger wax hot. It would seem that Aaron did not at all understand the enormity of the sin. It would seem that he was clueless about the nature of what this really was. Maybe he witnessed it, maybe he even participated in it, but he didn't have any understanding that this was a sin like Moses did. As I pointed out, some of those activities we mentioned earlier, they go on in the world around us, and if we aren't careful, we can participate and have no idea that they are against the law of God. Moses understood, but Aaron didn't. The way Moses understood was because he was a man of God. He was a man of the book. He was a man understanding of the character of the God whom he served. Not only that, you'll notice another thing that Aaron didn't seem to appreciate at all. I cast this gold into the fire and out came this calf. And not only that, previous to that he made the comment, you know the people are set on mischief. Moses, the fault is with them, it isn't with me. That age-old consideration of trying to exonerate and excuse oneself, that didn't work with Aaron, did it? Aaron was at fault. Aaron had a part to play in this error, and it couldn't be simply excused. You and I live in an age when this seems to be the order of the day in many ways, doesn't it? Those problems that I have in life, they aren't my fault. My parents' fault. They didn't bring me up right. It's the neighborhood's fault. My neighbors are just terrible people. I'm not the one to be blamed in any way. You get the idea. My unproductivity at work is because the school system didn't prepare me. It didn't have anything to do with my laziness, my failures. We seemingly are masters, if we aren't careful, at simply passing the book to somebody else, excusing ourselves and continuing on our own way of life. But that wasn't permitted for Aaron. Aaron was at fault. Moses dealt with him directly. You have helped to bring this sin on this people. You and I realize that each of us also stand in a position to where on that noble day of judgment... God's not going to allow us to pass the buck and to cast the blame on others, is He? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in His body. Singular pronoun, His body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. 
Revelation 22, 12 says something very similar. We each shall be judged according to the works of His body. The nature of that judgment highlights that Aaron failed in trying to pass the blame. And we today should appreciate that others may have their blame to be sure, but I have mine if I have some and I need to deal with it. Perhaps in finality, you'll notice that Moses didn't accept the Aaron's ploy of casting the blame and God didn't either. But doesn't that bring us to the closing observation? That wonderful book of life. We'll use that to not only close our lesson, but as a part to make ready for the offering of an invitation. After God had dealt with the people with destroying the calf, and after those matters concerning the rebuke of Aaron had taken place, we notice that beginning in verse number 30, that a day had passed, and we notice that a conversation develops between God and Moses. After all, the people had been guilty of this sin, and it was such an enormous one in the sense that it violated the very nature of the integrity of their association with God. They are supposed to be my people, and they've turned their back on me. Initially, God, in fact, said, I may not even go with you any longer. The journey from here on to Canaan, you're on your own. Moses pleaded with God, If you won't go with us, then we're not going to go. Moses had the correct view to realize if God went with them, they weren't going to go anywhere. The journey would be fraught with evil. It would be fraught with, in fact, dangers on every hand. In the midst of that conversation, we find this discussion. Verse 31, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses sought God, forgive them. Moses was a great intercessor on that occasion, wasn't he? Pleading with God to forgive this people for this error of the golden calf. But then he says, if you won't forgive them, even blot me out of your book of life. That's a great statement, isn't it? I would ask that we close our thought with verse 33. Because God then replied by saying, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Whosoever hath sinned against me. It is a great day when in baptism names are added to that book of life. Isn't it beautiful to give thought to a person, young or old, who makes that decision in life to obey the Master, to have his or her sins washed away, and then God writing that person's name in that majestic and wonderful book of life. But then we notice here that this people was such that their faithfulness had previously been mentioned, but now God says, anybody that has so sinned, I'll blot out their name from that book. And we learn in this verse as well as others then that that book may have names erased out of it. Names that were once there are no more. Names that were once there reckoned amongst the faithful are now lost in the despair of unfaithfulness. I would invite each of us to give careful reflection to that. What about this very morning at roughly 20 minutes past 11, the 23rd day of February, 2014? Is your name in the book of life? Was it once there but no longer is? If that be the case, you have today to make that right. You have an opportunity 
because just like God extended faithfulness, grace, and mercy to the Israelites, and He did ultimately go with them on to Canaan, God will go with you as well if you will beg Him to do so. This very day, the plan of salvation demands that we appreciate. If you've never become a member of that body, you've never had your sins washed away, why not today? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His wonderful name as the Messiah, and be baptized. If you've done that but are not faithful any longer, maybe you've been guilty of some of those sins we mentioned earlier today in the course of the lesson, things that society says are fine but God says are not. Why not come back to your first love too? Don't try to pass the blame on others. Don't try to excuse it. Sin's not a light matter. If we could be of help to you today, this very moment, the song of encouragement is about to be sung, and this would be a perfect time. Won't you come while together we stand together and while we sing?